Morning, everybody. Good to see you. We got pews. We got carpet. We're in business, cooking with gas, as they say. And we are wrapping up our study in First and Second Samuel. Can you believe it? Here we are. Final class. What's that? Oh, it's not working for you? Frank's, Frank's having trouble with his, uh, with his audio equipment. So can you guys hear me in the back all right? Speakers working, sound system working. They had to tear everything down yesterday, or not yesterday, but last week to, uh, to accommodate the carpet layers. So then they had to put everything back together. And I think what I was told yesterday was keep your fingers crossed, something like that. So, all right, if you can hear, we're good. Frank, are you any better? It's not working for Frank. He's coming down. He's coming to you. It didn't come on. Well, here, here's Charles. He's coming on. Neither one. Just wave your hand over him like Yoda does. Uh, y'all Star Wars fans? I What we'll do today is uh, we'll review over the entire class, and not every little detail, of course. We just want to finish with kind of a gist of what all of it is about and have something to take home. So it's still not working? Nothing yet? He's, you're working on it, right? Checking cables, okay. Had to unplug everything, so he's trying to get it fixed up. All right, well, I'll put something up on the screen for you then, and we'll do some review questions. Our first and second Samuel about Samuel. No? There's one answer. Where else do you read about Samuel? Well, it's, it's kind of about Samuel, but it's not really about Samuel. What's it about? What are they about? By the way, how long, this, this doesn't sound like a very respectful way to ask it, but how long does Samuel last in the totality of First and Second Samuel? The 25th chapter, as the 25th chapter begins, we read about the death of Samuel. 25th chamber, chapter of First Samuel. So Samuel is gone. So it's about Samuel, but it's not really about Samuel. Who's it about? Okay, David. Where's David introduced? Is that the next question? Oh, no, no. This is back into uh, still, still talking about Samuel a little bit before we get to David. How did Samuel come into the world? You remember this story? Supplication from Hannah. Who was Hannah? Well, she was a good woman, godly woman. Couldn't have any children. Praise to God. And I, I still use what she said as my favorite definition of prayer. When Hannah was seen by Eli, the priest, she was praying silently. Her lips were moving, but no sound was coming out. And Eli saw her. What did Eli think when he saw her? 
she's drunk. And she says, not so, my Lord, but I am pouring out my soul to the Lord. That's what she was doing. I think that's the best definition of prayer that we'll ever find. And so that's what saw, uh, that's what Hannah, yeah, Hannah, got to figure out who I'm talking about now. That's what Hannah did, and the result was Samuel. God said, I've heard your prayer, I'm going to give you a child, and, and that boy was Samuel. And her promise to God was that if she were given a child, a son, that she would bring him back and let Eli raise him, and that's exactly what she did. So yeah, Samuel grew up under Eli's tutelage, and that's how he came into the world. Uh, what about Eli's other boys? He had two boys of his own that were apparently biological sons. Tell me about them. Bad boys. Bad boys. What you going to do? What you going to do when the Lord comes for you? Is that where that song started? Could have. They were no good men. They should have been the best around, but they were no good. And I just have wondered, there's, there's no answer for this, but why Samuel didn't turn out like those boys since he was raised by the same guy. And we don't know who else might have been involved in his upbringing, but we know Eli was the dad, and we know how Eli's boys turned out. Bob? And one year with him, and then she brought him, and she would come back every year to visit. But maybe she kept up on Facebook or something. No, maybe not. Different times. For whatever reason, Samuel was different. He was different because he wanted to be different. He made some choices of his own. But that's my speculation. Seems like Samuel was a man close to God, very closely related to God. Not just a religious man, not just fulfilling a purpose at the tabernacle, but close to God. So when does David appear? When do we first see him introduced in 1 Samuel? You can go back and flip the pages. But I would look, and, and this is me, I would look at chapter 13. Chapter 13, by the way, who was the first king? It was Saul. Saul was king. He's king here, but he has behaved foolishly and not in obedience to God. And so it says in verse 14, and this is Samuel, by the way, talking to Saul. This is chapter 13, verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not endure... The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept the, what the Lord commanded you. So you know, we read this in English. How does this translate to you? What is God saying to Saul? You didn't do what I wanted you to do, so what's happened? What's the result of that? I've, I've sought out a man after my own heart. And at first it sounds like this is something he's going to do, but then you read the latter part of the verse and it sounds like it's already been done. I've already found him. I've already made the appointment. But we don't even know who it is. And he doesn't mention any names. So this is God's plan. 
I've got a man in mind, I think is what God is saying here. And as far as I'm concerned, he's already been appointed king. But obviously we haven't been introduced to him. Samuel doesn't know who he is, hasn't heard anything about him. Samuel will eventually anoint David, but he hasn't yet. But in God's mind, it's a done deal. It's like everything else God does. I'm going to do it, so it's as good as done. So we're introduced, in a way, to David here in chapter 13. And then in chapter 15, this comes back. God is once again reprimanding Saul for not being obedient. And he says this. Let's see, where was that? Verse 28, Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to whom? Your neighbor, who is what? Who is better than you. So this is what we're reading about David before we've even heard about David by name. That God has had a man in mind who would be a man after his own heart. And here we see God is saying, this guy's better than you. Well, that's not very nice, is it? To say that somebody's better than you. Don't we tell our children, nobody's better than you. And you're not better than anybody else. And God comes along and says, oh, David's better than Saul. Yeah. What's that betterness all about? It's about David's inclination toward God. And Saul's disinclination. Preston? That's it. And if you want to be better, I'm not talking about competing against people. But if you want your life to be better, incline yourself towards God. There's no other way. You can get all the self-help books you want. You can do all the training. You can do all the, the proper eating. You can do the proper study. You will not better yourself until you incline your mind and your heart towards God that's what David has done and that's why God is saying these things of him what's so special about David that's it he was a man after God's own heart but but it wasn't just that what else set David apart Steve uh in my opinion, the thing that set David apart is later it says that David ruled God's people with justice and fairness. Absolutely. Which, Which is the same thing that would be said of Jesus. Justice, righteousness. Preston, you had something? I, <clears throat> I can't put it into words. I've been trying to put it into words and I'm struggling. <clears throat> Whenever you start given us Saul and how he acted and then how God picked someone that was better than him and that we reflect upon how he's after he's a man after God's own heart but yet we understand that he had his faults too and I start to think God has given us this as so he can teach us and that we can understand God and then I, I have to pause because we can't understand the mind of God. All we can do is get pictures of him and how he thinks 
but yet our understanding is pales in comparison to what he is. And so I get to thinking, oh, I'm starting to get a picture of God and understanding it. And then I think, not really, I just have a picture, but I don't really have the understanding. It's like we never really understand him. We just see that he is loving and how he loves us. And I struggle with that, thinking I'm starting to get the picture, starting understanding, but then I realize we don't need to rely upon our own understanding. We don't. That's exactly how Solomon puts in Proverbs. Don't rely on your own heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. So David seems to be a man who doesn't lean after his own understanding, except when he understands about God. He's a man after God's own heart, better than Saul. So God says, but tell me some things that David has done and what he was capable of at a very young age. Killed a lion. That's a pretty good accomplishment. What else did he kill? Killed a bear. Killed Goliath. Yeah. Took Goliath down. And then later on, as somebody pointed out, Bathsheba took him down. I don't know that that's really the right way to say it because it doesn't appear in the text as though it were any of her doing. He simply saw her and allowed his desire for her to overcome himself. He could have stopped that at any time, but he never did. And yet, here's this guy who kills a lion, kills a bear, and then when he is in front of Saul arguing that he can kill Goliath, what does he say about the fact that he killed a lion and killed a bear? The Lord did it. I did it through the strength of the Lord. That is what he says. And when he goes up against Goliath, and Goliath is out there taunting him, have you sent a dog out to me with sticks? And David says, I come to you in the name of the God of Israel. We're going to give your flesh to the birds of the sky this day. And that's, that's where his trust was. He was a young man. But his trust was in God. He was inclined towards God. He was a man after God's own heart. And he remained that way until his dying day, in spite of the fact, as some have pointed out, that he made a lot of mistakes. And I have to believe that this record is in here for me and for you so that as I try to live my life and, and try to do right and don't do right, I can look back at David and say, uh, there's still hope. I'm going to make it. I haven't done the Bathsheba thing yet. I haven't killed any woman's husband to get to her. Uh, I haven't tried to talk other people into lying for me and in fact convinced them to lie for me, to, to conspire to lie and to commit murder and to deceive. I haven't done any of that. Well, let me think back and make sure. Uh, but have a, have a, so am I better than David? It's not about any of that stuff, is it? It's about our inclination towards God. Because we're going to get dirty in this life. We're going to do things we regret, do things that are going to stick with us in our minds, and every time we think about it, we're going to cringe. I, I did that. I said that. How could I be that mean, ugly, stupid, awful, inconsistent? Whatever it is, that's what we ask ourselves about what we do. But who do we go to with it? That's the question. When you come up short, go to God. When you've rebelled against God, go back to God. Always go back. That's, that's what characterized David's life. 
when God sent Nathan to David and he said, you're the man, did David fight it? Did David try to justify himself? He repented. And that characterized his life. And that's a huge part of why I believe God would say he is a man after my own heart. He's always coming back to God. You know, Jesus in heaven still serving God. You know, after He's been here and shed His blood for us, we just get these pictures of God has sent us to think about and how to walk our lives. But David is the one, and all the things <clears throat> I had a brother-in-law that was pretty colorful, and he had done some things, but his heart. It was just unbelievable. And I always thought about David when I thought about my brother in law and some of the things that he had done, but yet his heart shone through all of them. And it's just it's such an impressive example that God has recorded for us so that to help us get through this life. You know? And that's that's what we have to do. We just keep hanging on, hanging in there. Keep on keeping on in spite of what we do or say that shames us. What things characterize David's life, that's, that's what we've been talking about here. Anything else you want to talk about regarding David, his life, his spirit, his attitude? Mike? That's the 51st Psalm, if it's the same thing we're, we're thinking about. Ask God to restore his salvation. So when I, I look at that compared to Saul. When he knew he was going to die, mm-hmm. he was not going to win. And he fell upon his own sword. But, but then, too, there are people who believe both of them are saved, and there's people who believe both are lost. The LDS church, you know, the Mormons, they believe David is lost. Hmm. So I, you know, I, I just don't know. You seem to think David's saved. I do. I do too. I yeah. seem to think that, but I'm not sure about Saul. But yes. yet he was chosen by God. But then he didn't do right, did he? To the end, to the end, he did not do right. When he fell upon that sword, there's no scripture that says he asked the Lord to forgive him. No. And and all that is up to God. Yeah. And I, man, I am. I don't know if there's anything else I'm so grateful for, but the fact that he did not make me judge. <laughs> and, and we look around in the world and we see not just the evil of people doing the obvious evil things, but we see uh, folks in denominations who believe things that we don't believe and think are wrong and in error. And people have asked me through the, the question, do you think they're going to hell for doing this? You think, And they fill in the blank of whatever it is they're doing. And it's like, Who am I to say? That's up to God. You and I, all we can do is look at what the word says and and teach that to people as we teach it to ourselves. Say, I I know this is what the Lord says. Is somebody going to be lost? Well, if there's a passage that says, well, for example, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You can go there and you can read this. 
and see that there is a, a characterization of people's lives and their behaviors. But but this is it's still not up to you and me. It it's up to God. What did I say? First Corinthians six. And this is probably a familiar passage to a lot of you. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but what happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. Now take a look at that list there in verse 9. How many of those things was David? Was he a fornicator? He was a fornicator. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was covetous. But did he stay those things? Did that characterize his life? Or was that just something he did along the way and, and then later he, he would reject it and repent of that? And that's you and me. And that's what the Holy Spirit is having Paul write about the church at Corinth. This is what you were. But, but you're not that anymore. You have changed. David changed. You and I have changed. And our life is going to be one long chain of change because every day we're going to say and do things that we would rather we hadn't said or done. But we repent of it. We, we measure ourselves against what? We measure ourselves against the word of God. We measure ourselves against Jesus Christ himself. We use him and his word as our standard. And that's how we say to ourselves and to God, I have sinned. This is not what I should be doing. I, I am sorry. I, and God can see it. it. It doesn't, you don't have to express it perfectly to God. Isn't that great? There's never a time when you're praying to God and he's going to go, you know, I'm not sure I understand what you're trying to tell me. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> he already knows before we start our prayer, before we bow our heads, before we bow our hearts, he knows. And that's why he could say of David, he's a man after my own, God, my own heart, because he wasn't looking just at the outward things he did. He was looking at the man's soul, his spirit. And he knew that David was inclined towards him. And he knew that if he sent his prophet to, to confront David about his sin, that David would repent. And that's what God does for us. Marty, yes. One thing about that, God knows for sure whether we mean it or not when we repent to Him. Absolutely. And sometimes we don't even know if we mean it. Because right. we, we'll, I'm, I'm so sorry, Lord, but in the back of your mind, you know, I'm going to do this again. Why am I going to do it? Because I'm weak? Because I'm stupid? Because I'm carnal? I'm, gonna, I'm sorry, Lord, but I, I'm afraid I'm going to do this again. And He, it's like He says, I know you are. You doofus. I love you. Anyway, he's, that's, he's, that, who else does he have to love but people like you and me? Man, it's like pick of the litter. They're all runts. Billy? In Romans 8, 1 and 2 there, it says, Therefore there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We're going to walk after the flesh. That's our sinful nature. Right. 
And somehow we can do it. Yes, he does. Bob? sinfulness on God. Don't blame your weakness on God. We live in a fallen world and we are fallen, but but I, I would have a hard time if anybody ever challenged me to attribute my sin to someone else. Because I've pretty much chosen everything I've done wrong. Flip Wilson, when he would play Geraldine, Back in the day when that was just comedy and there wasn't any politicizing to it, what was his line? That devil made me do it. It was hilarious because, well, if you don't know, go home and Google Flip Wilson. Get on YouTube and look up Flip Wilson and see how that's a reflection of the way we often think. But somebody said, and I think well so, we really give the devil too much credit. He can lay the traps, but we are the ones who decide to step into it. And half the time we know they're traps. It's just the bait looks really good for whatever it is. So we read this list in 1 Corinthians of those who won't enter the kingdom of heaven and we see that David was some of those and we are some of those, have been some of those, but we are washed we are sanctified we are justified and David was as well and it's all about where his heart is and where your heart is and our inclination towards God yes and the repentance is based once again it's based on what does God say I don't measure myself against what I think is right I don't measure myself against what somebody else thinks is right Somebody says, well, you hurt my feelings. Well, okay, Uh, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, but your hurt feelings don't constitute sin in me. But if you realize that the reason their feelings are hurt is because you did something evil, okay, that calls for repentance. That calls for change. And if you realize you hurt somebody, that's, that's when you should hurt. And if you don't hurt over hurting somebody else, well, he got problems. He did. Every time. And that's what we have to do. That's what we've got to keep coming back to, is that repentance. All right, how did the temple come to be? Location and all. How did the temple come to be? Census. You're, you're jumping ahead to chapter 24 of Second Samuel. I guess that's all right, isn't it? That's the location anyway, where we're talking about that. But how about the temple itself? David said he wanted to build a house for God. He was he was in his, well, where was he? He was in his house of cedar in Jerusalem. City of David. House of cedar. And he says, wow. I'm in a nice cedar house. Hiram built for me. Where's the ark of God? It's in a tent. 
And so he talks to Nathan. I want to build a temple for God. And what does God have Nathan go tell David? I didn't ask for a temple. But you want to build me a house? Okay, here's what I'm going to do. What did God say he would do? He's going to build David's house. And he wasn't talking about a house like Hiram built for him. He was talking about what? The kingdom, his family, his, his line, his lineage. And so that, that's what all of this is about. God's put David on the throne, and we still read about the throne of David. Who sits on the throne of David today? Jesus Christ. Isn't this an interesting view of First and Second Samuel that this man comes into the into play in God's plan, and it's like he is our link to God. The Son of God comes and he sits on the throne of David, and that is where it is said he still sits today. And his kingdom is established, but it's established on the throne of David. And I'm looking at David going, what kind of a guy was David? And then I'm saying, oh, well, that makes perfect sense because that's the same kind of guy I am. I'm wicked and sinful at times. But if I repent, there is this link between this world and God's. And it doesn't have to do with me being perfect and me being worthy because I can't be worthy except through the blood of Christ. But because Christ is on the throne of David, there's hope for me. His blood washes my sin away as far as east is from west. I don't know if you've ever thought about how far that is, but that's a, that's a long way. And that's what it says. As Jeremiah would write, God says, I will cast your sins behind my back. Isaiah as Isaiah begins, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, what's going to happen? They'll be white as snow. And Isaiah and Jeremiah both talked about the throne of David. And so did Zechariah as we, well, here's Isaiah. Here's one from Isaiah that we looked at last week. A child will be born to us and a son will be given to us and government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. And there's, there's Steve, your justice and righteousness right there that is said of David. He established justice and right. And here we have it with, uh, with Jesus, the Son of God, on the throne of David. From then on, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What's that say, the zeal of the Lord of God? It's like God says, I'm fired up about this. This, this is what we're looking forward to. This is the big deal. And then we read this in Zechariah. We don't read too much or talk too much about this, but God said through Zechariah, On that day I'll make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left and all the surrounding peoples while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. What's the analogy, the, the pot in the midst of the fire? What happens to the fire? The fire consumes. Whatever wood you put into the fire is consumed. What happens to the pot? It stays there. 
The stuff that's in the pot is prepared by the fire. The fire cooks, uh, as, as it were, the contents of the pot, and when it's done, now you got a meal. Any camper knows that. Anybody got a Dutch oven? Man, as the embers dissolve into molecules and atoms, the stew is becoming perfected. Or the cobbler, or whatever your little heart wants to put into that Dutch oven. Dutch oven's a big iron pot you put in the ground and you cover it with coals and it cooks stuff in it. That's, that's the analogy that we're seeing here by Zechariah. It says, the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first. Does that sound like any other passage of scripture in the New Testament? How about Romans chapter 1, verse 16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God for what? For salvation. To who? To the Jew first. And also to the Greek, to the Gentile, to Okies. And the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. The house of David, there it was. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like an angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I'll seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. See, this throne of David thing was not just about David. Is that the lizard? Yeah. Oh, there he is. That guy can run like crazy. He's like one of those Australian things. I wondered if he'd still be in here today. I was going to mention something about it. We'll hear some screaming later as he runs under some dear sister. He, he runs like, you know, you see these movies about Australia and the lizards over there. And the only thing he needs is one of those frills to pop up. and be, He gets up on his legs. He doesn't scoot along. The, he gets up on his legs and his tail's in the air going like this. And he runs like crazy. He's, I don't know if I've ever seen one. However, I think that might be the kind of lizard. Years ago, there was a road runner on top of this building and he had a lizard in his mouth. Man, rough neighborhood. Anyway, but there he is. He's, he's come to worship. Preach the gospel to every creature. Oh, he's hearing it here. But you see what Zechariah is saying about the throne of David and the line of David and the fact that who are they going to look on? You see him down there? You can go catch him if you want. It's okay. <laughs> Get your cameras ready. <laughs> Are you really? Oh, man. So here, <laughs> we've shamed him into it. <laughs> Stick or anything? He's fast. Get him? <laughs> All right.
You want to take him home? <laughs> so the tail was still moving? Yeah. Snakes do that, too. You kill a snake, it'll still... Especially when you skin them, man, they go all over the place. <laughs> ah, poor lizard. People say, what do you think about that church Christ? They threw me out. I spent the night there, and they found me and threw me out. But I like what Isaiah says, because he, he was inspired with this message of the one whom they had pierced. So God is saying through Zechariah, I'm going to bless my people. I'm going to bless them like you wouldn't believe. They're the ones who are going to pierce my son, but I'm still going to bless them. I'm going to pour out on them, what's he say, a spirit. Was that previous? I missed that. Where does it say? A spirit of grace. There it is. Uh, second paragraph there. Spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, generally speaking, the nation of Israel did not do that. But those who did... If you read through the New Testament, you find those are the true Israel of God. Not all are Israel who were born Israelites, but those who embrace God and his son, those are the true Israel. What does the name Israel mean? And who got that name? Jacob got it when he wrestled with an angel. And Jacob asked the angel his name, and he said, it's too wonderful for you, but I'll tell you what, your name's going to be changed. You're going to be called Israel, and Israel means he who struggles with God. And then the meaning of that name is up for interpretation, but when you look at history, you see that this nation struggled with God constantly. And so I don't think it's any accident when God refers to the church as the Israel of God, because we also struggle with God. It's, it's our humanity. We are imperfect. We want to do right. We try to do right, but we don't always do right. But the question is, are we going to be like David and keep coming back when we've done wrong? Are you going to repent? Are you going to measure yourself against the word of God, measure yourself against the son of God now who's come down in the flesh, and we can read and with our mind's eye see how he behaved and how he loved his dedication to God and to his word, he would say, my food is to do what? The will of him who sent me. And I read that and I think, man, my food's lasagna. And it just comes back to me. How much higher is God than me? How much lower am I? And yet he, in the most perfect way, condescends. To me, because I need that gracious, merciful condescension. And that's what this is all about. It's about the throne of David. The guy who really messed up and is still a man after God's own heart. And so here we are finishing up this class, and I, I hope it's been beneficial to you. And you've not only learned something about David and his relationship with God, but that 
that's the kind of relationship God wants to have with each one of us. And that's the only kind of relationship we can have is to, is to be weak and sinful, but keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. Charles? I was mentioning earlier, struggling with God. I can talk about Isaac. He's, he's in class. Um, I've got an eight-year-old boy, and he got, I told him to do something yesterday, and he, and there, this wasn't comedy. He was genuinely upset, and he said, Dad, you're always telling me to do things that I don't want to do. And then, I mean, I'm not saying that for a laugh, for brevity. He, he was upset. Yeah. I said, well, son, you know, with, with all due respect, if, if it was something you wanted to do, I don't have to tell you. You know, I've, I've got one of the things you need to know to be a good adult is how to do things that you do not want to do because that's an important skill. And I get mad at God sometimes because he's always asking me to do stuff that I, I don't necessarily want to do. Forgive this person. Watch this. Don't watch that. It's frustrating sometimes. It's inconvenient. Get that right. I just want to say I, I appreciated that this morning. I needed to hear that. Well, it's, it's in the book. John? You don't have to like it. You just need to do it. But the thing is, the aftermath, if you can call it that, of doing the will of God is going to be beneficial to you. It's like Brussels sprouts. I know they're good for me. What's wrong with you people? (laughs) Now see, if you like Brussels sprouts, good for you. But I'm the one making the sacrifice for righteousness because I don't particularly care for them. Now, there are ways to prepare them that it's not quite so inedible. But but that's like a, a picture of life. As Charles is saying, that Isaac said, you're always telling me to do stuff I don't want to do. That's a pretty good observation for an eight-year-old to make. And to be willing to tell your dad that, it's like, I don't know if I would have had the courage to tell one of my parents that. But that's the kind of relationship you want to have. You want to have an open relationship where they know they can communicate with you and tell you anything, even though it might be something that's not all that spectacular, but that's the relationship you want to have. And I think that's what God wants to have with us. It's tight. There was a hand over here. Was it Preston? Well, he still has to do it, though. Yeah, okay, good point. Yeah, <laughs> just like Jonah. Three days in the fish, and he comes out of the fish. What's God tell him? Same thing he told him three days earlier. It's not going to change. Boy, get to Nineveh. Preston? Everything that we talked about today and about when the Spirit, when we baptized, we received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it tells us to not quench the Spirit. In other words, let the Spirit live within us and live according to God's plan and, and Jesus' example so that the Spirit can live within us. And then at that point, we don't struggle with God. We just live with Him. You know, kind of, would that be an accurate evaluation of that and, and the other thing was we struggled with God and I think 
we struggle with God. Or God lives in us, and we live with God and His Spirit in us, and we struggle with the world. Because God struggles with us in the world. I, I mean, I, you can see it in both contexts. You know what I'm well, to me, it's kind of like when Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. But why did he bring the sword? And what do you mean by that? He's going to set a man at variance with his own family because he's bringing the gospel. The trouble was already there. It's like Ulysses Grant said. Uh, how did he say? It was the, the gist of it was, I believe in war, but only as a means to peace. And I, I think he was taking that from the principles of Jesus. I don't know if he did that consciously, but that's what Jesus said. He was bringing the sword for the only way to bring peace is to first bring the sword. And I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. But that sword will lead to peace. That's why he could say, take my yoke upon you. And what are you going to find? Rest. Rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Yes, there's a sword in, in that sense, but there's also rest and peace. Peace that surpasses all understanding. It just gives us peace in this world, even though it's so uh, fleeting. Right. Excellent. Hope you all got something out of this class. I know I sure have. Lord bless you.